here in the book of John. The book of John is the fourth gospel of the New Testament. It's so different than the other three gospels. Um, it uh, is written from a whole different perspective, and John's kind of like that guy going, I was there, listen to me. So let's jump right into the Word. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we see that uh, today we made it through all five verses without stopping, so that's a good sign. Um, But we will stop at verse 6. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The apostle John begins to reveal the ministry of John the Baptist, okay? Two different people, two different Johns. And you would think that he was talking about himself, but here he's talking about John the Baptist. He goes on in verse 7. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. And listen for a key word here. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, did you get the key word? Light, correct? Good. It all, like a light bulb, went off in your head, right? Okay, well, you can laugh, it's okay. So John came as a witness, and the word is martoro, it's where we get the word martyr, which means telling the truth, even if you pay the ultimate price. We're seeing this right now uh, across the world as, as Russia is, is attacking and, and the Ukrainians, some of them are going, I'm going to say the truth even if I have to die. I mean, the, I think the president of, of Ukraine uh, told uh, uh, Biden when Biden offered, and, and, and rightly so, any world leader of our nature would offer something like this. Do you need to help? Do you need help? We can come get you out, so you won't die in this. And he goes, No, 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 no. Don't <coughs> don't send a plane to me. Send me more arms. Send me more more stuff to help fight them. And he's kind of standing up to the truth. He's saying, I'm going to stand there. I could be a martyr in this. This is kind of the same word. John the Baptist paid the ultimate price. And the Apostle John is writing about this years later, and he uses one key word after another. And in this, he gives us another name for Christ, which is light. We're keeping that list of the names of Christ, and the next one is light. So John now writes the book, probably during the nighttime. He's a very busy man. He, he's uh, pastored a large church in Ephesus, uh, known, and he became known as the disciple of love. He came out to be, you know, he was the disciple of loudmouth, and now he's the disciple of love. He would have been traveling. He would have been guest speaking in a sense. And John is in the middle of all those Greek-speaking believers in the land that we now call Turkey, And they've noticed that at the end of the assemblies, they would say that Jesus Christ was Lord. Now, this is important because who was supposed to be Lord of those nations at that time? Caesar. 
And if you called anybody else Lord, if you called anybody else God, they were, they were persecuted for that. But John talks as the light himself, one that's not going to be extinguished, and that light comes from Jesus. And you can imagine the oil lamps were burning as he's writing this, and he looks up and he sees kind of the, the flickering lights, right? I mean, now they're, they're making LED lights that, that flicker to give us the same effect because, you know, we all like the flickering light. We all like the campfire versus the fake light, right? I don't go outside and set around an LED light out at the fire pit, you know, be ridiculous. But John's sitting there, we're looking at this. And this is the neat thing about the Lord. Jesus walks through the wheat field and he grabs some kernels and he starts talking about how it relates to the Lord. He does this with water. He does this with fish. So when John starts talking about the, the light, he's either looking at the sun too much, you know, the sun stare, um, or, he's, or he's looking at, at some type of a lamp, and he goes, hey, his mind just goes, ding, Jesus is the light. So we start thinking about the qualities of light, and you begin to understand our Savior more. Because it doesn't just say Jesus brings the light. It doesn't say that Jesus is the battery for the light or he sheds light. It says Jesus is light. So God in his very nature is light. And the universe being you know, substance or form, it needed light. So God gave it light. Sun by day, stars and moon by night. And just like the starlight... Or the sunlight. That's where we get our vitamin D. They say that vitamin D is good, right? You know, one of the the negative things about our hospital is you don't get to go outside as much. You know, we all like, we like inside, right? We like air conditioning, all those things. But one of the things that's good for us when we're sick is sunlight. It actually helps. You feel better when you're out in the sun more. Just by being out in it. And this is like our relationship with Jesus Christ. The more we're around him, the more we're in his presence, the more we're under his light, the better we feel. But there are some times when it doesn't feel better. That's when the light shines on things that, that we go, oh, I don't like when that's seen. Even if we've been with the Lord for a long time, we still don't like it. We're having a great time in in God's presence, worshiping God, talking with him, a wonderful time. And he says, I'm glad you came to me today because I need to shine some light on something that is in you that I I need to get rid of. But we're we're, we're like, well, don't run this, God. Don't ruin it. I'm worshiping you. I'm in a great mood. Don't correct me right now. And he's telling us, I'm not ruining it. It's just that you're finally close enough for, for, you know, to me for you to finally listen. You see, the light reveals things as how they really are. Not for how we want them to be. It's like our anniversary dinners as we get older and older. They get darker and darker, don't they? In other words, we can't see as well. 
I don't mean the relationship getting darker, okay? <laughs> Sorry, but took that a wrong way, didn't I? But, you know, we're like, do you have, turn up those lights in the house. Turn up the lights. I used to not need light. Now I need extra glasses, you know? And having the light is so important, especially in your house. Uh, you, you think you know your house so well, but things get moved around, don't they? And when something gets moved around, it, it really changes things. And you better know where the light switch is, right? Well, I've used this example before, but this is, I mean, this example is so great because it shows the truth of needing light. When we lived up in Dublin on Mulberry Street, of all places, we lived on Mulberry Street, and, and my wife had gone to bed, and, and I'm sitting downstairs. We had a two-story place, and I thought, oh, I don't want to have to get up and go turn on the light in the stairwell and, and then come back and turn off the light at the couch where I was at. So I just turn off the light in the couch because I know my house, right? But I'm not too big of an idiot. I stick my hand out in front of me, right? That's pretty smart. If you're going to walk in the dark, put your hand out. The problem was we kind of had this center walled place where the AC kind of unit was and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was kind of a support for the for upstairs, a and I put my hand out like this, and I just walked very confidently. Well, the wall was coming at me, but my hand is going to catch it, right? Except it didn't. It missed it by like this much, and I walked straight into the wall. Bam! And I fall flat on my back. Lisa comes running down the stair. What's going on? I'm like, I should have turned on the light. We need the light. And almost any dark situation, having light is a good thing. And with Jesus, it's the same way for our life. And then you get around real light, not LED, but you start to get that warmth of the light. And you can go in a whole different direction with that, about the light warming us. And, and John the Baptist came to reveal the true light to us. Now, John came with a torch. John the Baptist came with a torch, kind of like, I'm going to burn down your thinking here because you need to repent. And he was kind of in your face. He's not like a little candle going, here's the light of Jesus. John the Baptist just came with a torch ready to burn stuff down, you know, and, and some people don't want to offend other people, but John the Baptist would show up and he would walk right into your cave and show everyone, say, hey, look at the sin right here. See the light? He would just point it out. And sometimes we need that. goes on in verse 10. He was in the world. And, through the, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So you have the creator entering the creation, and the creator is making himself part of his invention, uh, the world. You got a shepherd turning himself into the lamb. I mean, it's kind of a weird concept. How is this possible? Well, we couldn't do that. Now, I love my kids. I love kids. They're a blast. They're so innocent. They do some of the funniest things and say some of the funniest things. I mean, Doris could tell you stories over and over again about what they say. They have no fear about what they say. They're so carefree. 
no worries in this world, and then something happens as the child starts to gain knowledge, and that innocence is lost. In some ways, that's good. In many ways, that's bad, because they're happy-go-lucky. Their just love for life can be diminished when things happen. Now, it would be very difficult for us to turn back into a child, right? Well, some people haven't grown up. We get that, but it's a whole different sermon, you know? But imagine going back to your childhood with the knowledge that you have now. Now, some of us would go, well, yeah, my high school years, I, it'd be a lot different. I'd tell myself not to worry, right? But imagine going back to a four-year-old or a five-year-old. That would just ruin it, wouldn't it? It would just ruin the fun. Now take the shepherd turning himself into the lamb. I mean, you hear about, you know, the teaching about sheep and us and, and, I mean, sheep are just really just dumb, right? You know the term right now, sheeple? You know, it's come as of late in the last 30 years, you know, just sheeple, just people who follow. Well, that's what sheep do. They just kind of follow. And they just kind of run off. They just, they don't, they're not smart. I can tell you all sorts of different things, but I won't go there. But it, it, to me, it just, just doesn't sound like the Lord. And I think we've forgotten that he comes and he wants to be a lamb. He wanted to be one of us so we could know him and understand him completely. Verse 10, he was in the world. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. They didn't know him, and they just didn't get it. Jesus of Nazareth was not the, only, I mean, not the one that they were looking for. because I mean, it's fascinating because there are over 300 different Old Testament prophecies that link to Jesus. Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. He proved it through his words, he proved it through his actions, and he proved it through his life. The way he came, the place he was born, little things that happened all through his life, all the way through his crucifixion and resurrection, none of his bones were broken. He was buried amongst the rich people like the prophecy would say. It goes on and on and on. 300 prophecies, and yet they were blinded so much they couldn't see it. They would say, well, our Messiah is supposed to be, you know, from Bethlehem. You are from Nazareth. But what do we know about Jesus? He was born in Bethlehem. He was from Bethlehem. The family just moved to Egypt and then moved back to Nazareth, okay? He was born there, just not raised there. <clears throat> so the prophecy was true out of Bethlehem was the one and they just got it in their head that this only thing that it could mean is is that he wasn't the Messiah and they missed him completely and they would kill you if you kept talking that way because you were threatening everything that they believed you could imagine the, uh, you know, uh, marketing people uh, getting a hold of Jesus. Okay, Jesus, you just got to be a little more clear. No more parables. They're confusing everyone. And the disciples saying, yes, but, but we don't even know what you're saying, Jesus. So, yeah, I agree with the marketing people, you know. But he came like he chose to come, to seek 
the children, to seek those who were willing to open their hearts and minds, those who were truly looking for him, and so that the stubborn and the religious people would go right past him, and they would feel good about it, yet they were missing the Messiah. He was in the world, and the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, if you're interested in the original language, you'd want to know that John was a follower. <coughs> John, he's a Jewish follower of Christ from the you know, region of Galilee, and he was probably an original follower of John the Baptist. And he was probably following John the Baptist until Jesus showed up and he went, oh, this is, and he went toward Jesus, okay? But, but the last two-thirds of his life, he spent around non-Jews and not even in Israel. He was in Turkey where they, they called it Asia Minor. John's close friends would not have been Jewish. I mean, not that he broke from being Jewish, not that he left that behind. He was, you know, it was just the majority of the church by 90 AD was non-Jewish. The logos, the idea that we talked about for the last two weeks, just clicked with the Greeks. And they became Christians so fast. It expanded the church so quickly. Like the word anointed one. He would talk about the anointed one. And then he would say, in Prince, you know, he'd be like, that means Messiah. Because he would have to explain, because they would have no clue what anointed one meant. Because they didn't grow up talking like that. So John takes these Greek words that, that we really have to look at and understand. And those words, uh, you know, is receive, and the other one is to know. He was in the world, and the world did not recognize him or receive him. He came to that which, his, uh, which was his own, but they did not receive him. So the word receive is the word labano. And listen to what it means. Receive means to choose who to associate with. Receive is what a bride and a groom do. I choose to associate with you and you alone for, until we die. That's the vows. Receive is not just like, you know, not just like receiving line. Receive is like, I take you to myself. So when scriptures talk about, you know, Joseph and Mary in the gospels, it means that Joseph received Mary as his wife. Remember, the angel had to come to him because he decided not to labano with Mary, not to receive her. And the angel said, do not be afraid to receive her. And that's what the words mean. And the other word, to know, and the word in the Greek, word for, it's, it's an experiential knowledge or an intimate knowledge. It's not just to know something in your head. I mean, there's a lot of knowledge we know, right? My wife tells me I'm full of useless information. I know stuff that I have no clue why I know it or where I know it from. Sometimes I'll even say something. She goes, that's not true. I'm like, look it up. And she looks it up and she's like, ah, darn. So now sometimes she goes, okay, you're wrong. And then she tells me I didn't know it, you know. But, but this is a, 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 you know, experiential knowledge, like a marriage. I know that I love my wife. Now, there are times in 
my head that says right now in the middle of this disagreement, I know she doesn't like me that much. Have you ever been there? Been married, you understand. There are times when, when something's going on and you're like, you know, in your head, you're like, I don't like you right now. Now, does that mean you don't love them? No. You can still have love for them. You just don't like what's going on. But our heart says, I know that she loves me and that I love her, so we're going to get through no matter what happens. That's marriage. That's the lifelong commitment. And this is what he's trying to say to us about Jesus and our relationship with him. This is how marriages stay together. It is true receiving of each other, an intimate knowledge of each other, or saying, I choose to associate with you, and I know no matter what happens, we love each other. Now, it's sad when your brain and your heart don't lead together. Your heart says one thing and your brain says another, and later you realize what you did, and you know, or you lead with your heart and leave out your brain, and you get yourself in the middle of a terrible situation. But when the two truly work together, that's, what you're, that's when the Bible says you're, you're starting to know. You just know. And that's our relationship with, with Jesus, to receive and to know. But the world did not receive him, and they did not know him. Now, some of you might be tracking with this. These two words also describes an engagement in the first century marriage. So John grabs these first century marriage words and uses them to describe the marriage between Christ and us. Verse 10, he was in the world. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So here Jesus, and if you indulge me a little bit more, he, he proposes to us. He is the groom. He wants to be our groom. Will you receive him? That's the question. Will you know him? And the, the, the answers, the question, and this answers the question about does God force people to follow him? No. God doesn't force people to follow him. He sets up the situation. You see here him clearly. You have a choice, but no force is involved here. Because perfect love requires the return of love. There's no gun to the head, right? Can you imagine if I did this when, when I wanted to get engaged to my wife? Hey, honey, let's go out for dinner. I mean, we did, you, know, uh, you know, our third year dating anniversary, we were up with some friends um, in the hill country of Texas, Wimberley, a little town out there near uh, San Antonio area and stuff. And, and we're up there, and, and I had it set up where, where my best friend was going to go up, and he set up a little nice dessert thing on top of this. It was called Mount Baldy. It had like 227 steps to the top, okay? Um, in Texas, we call those mountains. Out here, you would call those little bitty hills, okay? I'm just saying but in the middle of all this, could you imagine if I pulled out the ring and a gun at the same time? Will you marry me? Now, what would that signify? Uh, chaos, stupidity. I mean, lots of things, right? That would not work. That would be crazy. That'd be just as crazy as Lisa not wanting to marry me, right? I mean, I'm just saying. That's what I'm talking about. So let me, let me get off. Okay, verse 12. Yet to all... Who did receive him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God children born not of natural descent nor of human decision 
or a husband's will, but born of God. So if you receive him, if you chose him, if you took him as yours, if you believe in his name, if you said yes to him, he hands you not an engagement ring, he hands you the right to become a child of God. This is something, I mean, this is an incredible bargain, right? And I've seen some doozy, like, engagement rings or wedding rings. You know what I'm saying? The big old rock, and you're sitting there going, how did they afford that, you know? And you're thinking, is that real or is it cute? Okay, no, anyway. But this is so much better. You hand him the mess of your life, and he hands you the right to be a child of God. And once the package is opened, it's unreturnable. It's not like you can send it back to Amazon. And what does he do? He gives you this amazing trade. And the price has already been paid. And he hands you the right to become the child of God. Now, what would it look like to be born into this type of family? What types of rights does a child have when they're born into the right family? The right to call God Abba, as the Apostle Paul says, Daddy. And this is hard for some people, and I get that. I have no problem with that. Some people grew up a little more formal. You, you, you just don't go like, hey, Jesus, how's it going, buddy? You know. You just don't act like that toward God. There, there should be some respect. I understand that. And at the same time, we, we, you know, when I think of Abba, I don't think of me just going, hey, buddy. I think of the five-year-old or the four-year-old or the three-year-old you know, sees daddy or sees mama and just runs up and gives, jumps up and gives them that big hug. That's the type of daddy he's talking about here. The right to call father, father God who we know is the almighty creator, the big God, the only God, then I say, I am in your family, and I can call you daddy. That's a huge thing, isn't it? I mean, for us, we adopted Grayson. Imagine him just going through, through foster care, bumping around, and that's hard, Right? That's why we are trying to do stuff with the Crisis Pregnancy Center, which is, what, not this Tuesday, but the next Tuesday is the next one, where we're trying to, trying to help these young women who may not have the fathers around. Let us supplement that. Let us be the fathers in a good way so they can get to know the true father, which is in heaven, right? We say, I'm your daddy. Now, some people have a hard time saying real prayers because they've grown up with religious prayers. And religious prayers and memorized prayers, those aren't bad things, but not necessarily always from the heart. Not bad. Um, they're not always shallow, but they can be. It just means they haven't necessarily learned how to communicate with, their, you know, with our daddy. When I called my dad on, on the phone before he passed away, I said, hey, dad. He instantly knew it was one of his sons, and then he started trying to figure out which one is it by the voice. You know what I'm saying? Now, wouldn't it be weird if I said, hey, Dad, and he says, hi, back, and then I say, 
My, gro- my most gracious Father, I call you this day. Wouldn't that be kind of weird? Then why do we do that always in prayers? And again, I don't mean disrespect. We need to have respect to our Father in heaven as we're talking to him. But sometimes our prayers don't have to be that way. Do you see what I'm saying or, or have I lost you? These prayers are good. They get us started, but after a while we need to warm up to him. We're trying to rotate prayers in my house. I was just talking to my wife the other day, and, and you know, as we pray, we're like, okay, who wants to pray? And, and you know, the kids, they're, they're like, you know. So we're going to start rotating. We're going to do alphabetical by the first letter of the name. So I'll go the first day, then, then Brandon will go the next day, then Grayson will go, and then Lisa will go. They need to see us praying to our Father, and it doesn't need to be the same prayer every time, right? They're learning how to communicate. So one of the ways to break through this is start your prayer maybe with, with Daddy, and that may be a little too weird. If that's too weird, just say Father, but it doesn't have to be our most gracious Heavenly Father. You know, it doesn't have to be that. Sometimes it can be that, but not every prayer. And don't feel like that if you're not formal, you're not acceptable. You're acceptable because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and you accepted that. That's why you're acceptable. Not because of the words that come out of your mouth. Not just, uh, you know, it doesn't have nothing to do with that. But verse 12, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children not, are born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus is going to say in John 3, He's going to say that it's not God's will that any should perish. Now, perish means to die or to be separated from God, okay? That's the type of death that he's talking about there. It's not his desire that anybody be separated from him. It's not God's will for you to perish. So we can sit here and say, well, I wonder if it's God's will for me to be saved. I wonder if I'm predestined. Well, yes, you are. God wants everybody to be saved. Now, will everybody accept the gift? And this is where uh, we talked about this when we went through the book of Romans. You know, some people, you know, Calvinism, uh, Calvinism versus Armenianism, uh, predestination versus uh, us choosing. And, and people like to get on these sides and say, well, this scripture right here says that it's all God. And then you look at other scripture and you go, but this scripture says we have a choice. Well, guess what? It's both. It's something that we don't completely understand how it happens. God pulls us to him, but he's all-knowing, so he knows who's going to accept him. So are we predestined? Does God already know who's going to accept him? Yeah, he's God. It's hard for our human mind to get wrapped around that, right? It's like us trying to explain, you know, thermodynamics to a five-year-old. Will that work? No. Try to, say, try to explain all the details to God to a 51-year-old. It's kind of the same way. I don't always get it because God is bigger than me. God's mind is infinite. It's not God's will for you to perish. He wants you to choose him, to know him. But what amazes me is this. After he kind of wines and dines us, put it in our vernacular, treats us very special, sets up the situation for us to respond to him, we sit back sometimes and say, I don't know. I'm kind of afraid. 
It is God's will for us to be saved. And the stuff that he is saying or saving you from, you would be an idiot to stay in. The stuff that we call fun. Oh, it's all great. But sometimes that fun, the world's fun, is destroying us. And my prayer for you today is if you choose not to receive Christ, if you ever told him no, that the stuff that you hold back to and think that is fun would make you miserable. You know what I'm saying? All of a sudden you would see what we saw and say, there really is no life outside of the creator. There is no fun outside of the, the reality of who God is. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, that's us, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or our husband's will, but born of God. And Jesus uses some of the exact words here with Nicodemus later on where he tells him, you must be born again. And we are totally changed, not just slightly changed, but real change. We are like newborn babies, and this is why we call new believers, you know, baby Christians. Because they're, they're, they're newly born into the family. And, and, and they have to learn about the things of God and the nature of God. And, and you know, newborns, do you just <clears throat> say, hey, the food's in the fridge, go eat? No. Oh, there's snacks in the pantry? Go ahead and go? No, we have to feed them, right? The same thing with Christians. We don't go, hey, there's a library over here. You know, I got a library in my office. You need to go, you know, pick out some of those seminary books and start reading. No, we bring them along. Let's try one more verse and we'll be done today. It says, verse 14 The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son. Who came from the father. Full of grace and truth. I mean if you read that. You'll know why we won't get past that today. The word became flesh. So logos. Which is the word. Becomes sarks. Which is the flesh in Greek. So God became human. I wonder what it was like for God to give himself a body. You know what I'm saying? If that was me, I mean, I'd, you know, 6'5", full of muscle, you know, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> what are some of the human things that make you not God-like? Well, we can only be at one place at one time, even though everybody wants to be at two places at once, Right? Doris wants to be home in Arkansas, but she wants to be with her grandchild at the same time. She's helping out, you know. She wants to be the two places at once. But we can only be at one place at one time. I mean, unless you're a woman, then you can multitask, but that's a whole nother. But he took on flesh. He now experienced pain, the physical pain. He needed to sleep, and he needed to eat. He experienced everything that we have experienced. He was tempted in all ways. And he was like us, yet without sin. 
the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that word dwelt means he pitched a tent in our neighborhood. He bought the house right down the street. That literally is what the word means. And it is a wilderness word. So basically, it means he moved into your wilderness neighborhood. The psalmist talks about this when he says, he encamped all around me. He, he pinched, uh, pitched a whole bunch of tents around me. And this is what it means when Jesus moves into our existence. He moves into where we, we really lived in our neighborhood. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. We beheld. The word is thamo ramai. It's where we get two important words, theater and the word theory. John is saying... We were in the middle of a three-and-a-half-year experimental, experimental theater. And Jesus showed us how to calm the storm. But he didn't do it by just saying, hey, watch this. Let me calm that storm. No, he took us out into the middle of the storm, and then he calmed the storm. He didn't just show us how to cast out demons he let us help cast out those demons. He didn't show us how to feed 5,000 people. He let us help feed 5,000 pe people. He handed us little pieces and said, pass it out. And we got to interact with all those people. It was like an interactive theater, and it was real. We're in the middle of it, and we participated in it. We beheld his glory, and it was all around us. And another aspect that this is theorized about Jesus is when he wasn't around. <laughs> I wonder what they, what they talked about. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? And, you know, Peter would pipe up and everybody would go, Peter, we know what you think. Just shut up. I'm trying to get other people's opinions here. Nathaniel, what do you think? Peter, again, shut up. You said it 15 times. I get it. Let someone else speak. Who could this be? They theorized who he was. They said stuff like, who is this man? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Who, have, you know, who could, could this be after he raised the girl from the dead? Everyone laughed at him when, when he, he said, oh, she's just sleeping. John would say, I even laughed at that one. Lord, come on, she's dead. No, she's just sleeping. Leave the room. And then he brings her out alive. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. The old school word for this is, is begotten. The word begotten means monogenese. And false religions have taken this to say that Jesus was born of God and a God's wife. And that's not what this meant. In fact, the word itself means mono, means one. Genese means arriving or appearing on the scene. The one appeared on the scene. So begotten means the only God arriving and appearing on the scene. 
We beheld his glory and the only begotten God, the only God arriving and appearing on the scene was full of grace and full of truth. Oh, these, I mean, those two words right there are packed full so much. Uh, I mean, full means permeated or, or saturated and grace is karos and it means undeserved favor. Undeserved. Have you ever received something you didn't, you know, deserve? And, and that's the favor of God. And truth is olathea, which means objectivity or reality, and the freedom from superstition. So Jesus is full of two things. John says, full of grace and truth. Full of, you know, full of long after we have calmed down the fire and, you know, or we have called down the fire. I mean, like, you know, somebody comes up to us and, man, they kind of get in our face and we're just like, bring the fire of heaven down on them. You know, we're, we're just like, and he's like, no, 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 no. I, I, I love them. Treat them with respect. Give them love. And he blew them away with his grace. And then when we're ready to follow with grace all the time, oh, just let me treat everybody with love, he shows up the truth and nails somebody right between the eyes, and sometimes that somebody is us. But it doesn't just mean full of 100% truth, because we would run from God if it was 100% truth all the time, right? There's got to be some grace in there. If he was just full of truth, then we'd just have another John the Baptist. But he was also full of grace, this is like God being grandma. Oh, come here. You just need, you need another little cookie. That's what you need. Stop that crying. Let me get you a cookie. When in reality, you just needed a, a swat up the backside of the head, right? But grandma doesn't give swats. She gives grace. I mean, not always. I mean, sometimes it depends, you know, depending on the situation. But Jesus is the perfect combination, completely saturated with grace and completely saturated with truth. You know, we, we, in my house, we have a jar. It's called Grandpa's Cookies because Grandpa always had cookies to give the kids, right? Yeah. John is going to go on and tell the story. And the story is about how Jesus filled John with grace and truth. You will see it in the disciples and their own lives as they go through this journey. Those who were more full of truth, and some of us know we're kind of more full of truth, right? Can we raise it? Do we raise it? No, we, we don't raise it, you know. But there's others that are full of grace, right? Right? that need a little more truth in their lives. It's a balance. And we start getting closer to Jesus. He starts changing us. No matter if we're the grace guy or the truth guy, what comes out of our mouth is the love of Jesus full of grace and truth. That's the amazing thing about God. He changes us to the point where he comes out of our mouth instead of ourselves. If I would let Jesus come out of my mouth more often... I would not get, my, get myself in trouble as much, right? Anybody else in that boat? Or is it just me? Yeah. Because sometimes I think, you know, after I say it, I'm thinking, why did I say that? 
I mean, they needed to hear it, but why did I say it? Or why did I say it in that manner? Maybe they needed to hear it, but just not that way. That's Jesus. And that's what John is going to teach us. Well, we're out of time, so why don't I pray and the worship team will lead us out with the last song. Lord, we thank you for being full of grace in our life. That you just don't swat us with the truth. But Lord, we, we also pray that we see your truth. And it's not always grace. That we start to understand who you are, who you truly are, and how you can change our lives. Right is right and wrong is wrong, but grace just solves all issues in the middle of right is right and wrong and is wrong. Lord, I pray that, that we'd start to treat people how you would have us treat them, how you would treat them, that we be your hands, we be your feet, we be your voice in this world that so desperately needs you. And I pray, Lord, that this week that we begin that process of being you to this world. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he love you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.